Welcome to the Fabulous 413. I'm Khalees Smith. And I'm Monty Belmonte. Coming up, the first installment of Meet the Mayor with Holyoke Mayor Joshua Garcia. And later, word nerd Emily Brewster, resident wordster from Merriam-Webster in Springfield on the meaning of love. Our first guest, we've been billing her for a couple of days because everybody's been thinking Donald Trump might get arrested on Tuesday, <laughs> is Jennifer Taub. From her website, Jennifer is a legal scholar and advocate whose writing focuses on follow the money matters, promoting transparency and opposing corruption. She's testified as a banking law expert before Congress and has appeared on MSNBC and CNN. A former associate general counsel at Fidelity Investments, she's a graduate of Yale College and Harvard Law School. Taub was a visiting professor. <laughs> and that's Jennifer Taub's dog. Oh, we're so lucky. We got puppies on the show. What's your dog's name? His name is Ponzu, and he's not supposed to be barking. <laughs> Ponzu has serious opinions on this entire allegation. As a lawyer, I think you should be defending Ponzu here. Right. Uh, oh, his right to express his First know. Amendment of barking. <laughs> we continue with your elaborately long introduction, Jennifer. Tom was a visiting professor of law in 2019 at Harvard Law School and is now a professor of law at the Western New England University School of Law, along with her dog, Ponzu. <laughs> She's the host of the Politicon podcast, Booked Up with Jen Taub, and is the author of Big Dirty Money making white-collar criminals pay, and has her substack locked and loaded to analyze what is widely believed to be the coming indictment of former President Donald Trump. Is this something that we're still kind of widely expecting in any way that Donald Trump portrayed it over the weekend, Jen? Oh, well, that has a two two parts. Um, and thank you so much for having me <laughs> on uh, the fabulous 413. So your, your question, Monty, had two parts. Um, we're expecting an indictment, but not in the way Donald Trump said. He said it was coming Tuesday. And, and you know, if you're ever wondering what the motivation is for the misdirection, just follow the money. Uh, Donald Trump has raised $1.5 million since uh, Saturday when he announced that he was going to be arrested on Tuesday. Uh, so that's good for him. I'm thinking that maybe, you know, a, a little radio station I know nearby might want to claim they're going to be arrested on Tuesday. It could be a fantastic This just in. <laughs> Monty Belmonte about to be arrested. No. <laughs> Wouldn't so be the first never, time. <laughs> he was never going to be arrested. Uh, he was going to be like every other high profile criminal and, you know, white collar or what I've been calling orange collar criminal. Mm. They're allowed to, um, you know, arrange for the for the, you know, arriving at that arraignment that, you know, no handcuffs, no, you know, helicopter chases over, you know, over a van. Right. Or was it a white maverick? I don't know. But anyway, <laughs> you know, he, he was never going to be arrested and he had no idea that it would be Tuesday. He was just thinking that um, that might have been the earliest possible date where, you know, at this point could be tomorrow, could be next week. Um, but, you know, it's kind of like one of those horse races because we also have like breaking news from some of the other uh, prosecutors who have a grand jury <laughs> pursuing him. I mean, there are other jurisdictions and many other uh, potential indictments. So I'm not see I'm not sure who's going to get to that finish line first. Most likely Alvin Bragg. How many grand juries are pursuing him currently? At least three. That's more than you should have. Yeah. Well, what my question is, so I served on a grand jury a couple summers ago, and it is a very secretive and private thing. We were not allowed to talk about any of the cases. We were not allowed to discuss it, even with our own family members. Why do we know so much about what 
grand juries are doing in regards to Donald Trump? Three grand juries. Oh, because uh, jurisdictions vary. I think the one that comes to mind for which we know, I think, TMI, uh, too much information, was the uh, in Georgia, that Fulton County special grand jury. And the laws in Georgia require uh, before one of these county DAs indicts someone, they have to like get a recommendation first from a special grand jury. Once they give a recommendation, then they can move on to your you know ordinary grand jury where the evidence is presented and they decide whether to indict or not. And it turns out that the rules around those special grand juries, like they're allowed to, there's like not a gag order on them. They're allowed to say whatever they want as long as it's not. Um, related to what they discussed in their deliberations, or at least that's what the guidance um, the judge gave them. And so that's why we had, you know, you know, that sort of whirlwind media tour um, and then radio silence from the, the chair. And then we saw, I think a few days ago, some other members of that special grand jury talking. Um, and as for the New York, uh, a bit different, I, you know, the fun rule in New York is that before you can indict a defendant in New York, um, you have to give them the opportunity to, they themselves, appear before the grand jury or a surrogate. And that's not always the case. It's certainly not the case in, in, in federal grand jury. So that that opened the door for Donald Trump, or in this case, um, uh, in this case, Costello, Robert Costello, um, someone who is, of all people, Rudy Giuliani's uh, lawyer. I mean, this this stuff is, it's like they only have paid one cast for this season uh-huh. to you know, wrap things up, you know. But anyway, Robert Costello appeared. And so, of course, he, we found out what happened before the grand jury, because as witnesses, you can say whatever you want. So he held a press conference out in front of the courthouse. As for today, I, we're not sure where the leak came from, but it probably came from someone in the grand jury or someone in the DA's office, probably that someone from the grand jury saying we're not going in today. So that's how we're finding stuff out, a combination between that's what the law allows and leaks. So along those lines of, of these three grand jury cases, what's the difference between him being brought up well, like with those three on state charges as opposed to if there were charges brought up federally? Oh, so I, the third one I'm thinking is the federal one because oh. Jack Smith, uh-huh. who is the um, special counsel, uh, not to be confused with Robert Mueller, but Jack Smith, who was the other one, but Jack Smith, who is the second special counsel who has investigated, um, you know, allegations of Donald Trump's uh, felonious activity, he has a grand jury. So there's that uh-huh. going, right? And he's looking, we know that he's looking at two different potential um factual grounds for uh, charges, that which would include the events around the January um, uh, January 6th insurrection and the um, the also the, did I say 6th or 5th? It's like my brain is. Yeah, yeah you, you said 6th. Yeah, okay. You're right there. Okay, good. And I said, and then also the, um, the documents that he hoarded at Mar-a-Lago, those are two different areas that have been assigned uh, to Jack Smith to deal with. And he's got, I don't know if he has one or two grand juries in connection with that. We're speaking with and, Northampton's Jennifer Taub, who is a professor of law at Western New England University. And we're talking about what everybody was talking about over the weekend, uh, most especially Donald Trump, the idea that Donald Trump, the <laughs> former president, was about to be arrested <laughs> and specifically on Tuesday. It didn't happen on Tuesday. And here we are on Wednesday and it hasn't happened. And a grand jury. So against what I would normally do if I were indicted on a grand jury, I think I would maybe try to keep that as much to myself as well, possible. Well, I mean, as Jen said, it's uh, become a marketing tool. He is continuing to run for president. Right. And you did mention uh, that th- there was a potential leak from a grand jury. Does that jeopardize 
what the grand jury's tasked to do. If the, a leak could be found, could all of these charges then be thrown out it, because legally? No. No? Sorry. Yes. I mean, it depends what's going on. I, I, I don't think the fact that a grand juror might have told a reporter we're not going in today or maybe they were, you know, you could imagine you're sit, sitting there, you know, standing there at like the stop and shop equivalent in Manhattan. What would that be like key food or something? Mm-hmm. And someone, a reporter recognizes you, you know, picking up a cup of coffee and, you know, a bagel. And they're like, why aren't you downtown? I don't think if you say we're not going in today, that's probably that big of a deal, jeopardizing. I mean, there are all kinds of challenges that you could bring against an indictment, but I don't think that this, I don't think there's been any, anything harmful. It's not, nothing that went on before the grand jury really has been discussed at this point. The case that Donald Trump was talking about over the weekend is the one in New York and has specifically to do with hush money paid to the, <clears throat> the porn star Stormy Daniels. Uh, now, on the surface, if you're not somebody who studies the law or understands these things, why is it a crime for him to pay hush money to say to Stormy Daniels, uh, I don't want you to tell anybody that we have had an affair? Well, two things. We're not entirely sure the full scope of what this indictment could be looking at. But let's assume for a second that it's only relating to, in 2016, the allegation that Donald Trump directed and worked with his former lawyer, Michael Cohen, to pay off that um, adult film star, Stormy Daniels. And, you know, in and of itself, um, so if you give someone money so that they don't say something bad about you, there are some, the way that could happen in and of itself could be a crime. Like if, if you, you know, if Monty, you came up to me um, and you knew something really terrible about, um, you know, God forbid about what my dog did. And you <laughs> Which didn't I want do, anyone. by the way. Oh, my <laughs> Who's God. Who's a bad doggy? No. Listen. <laughs> and um, if you knew, if you knew that Ponzo had done some terrible thing and you shook me down for money, in that way, you know, if I'm paying you off so you don't go on the radio and, you know, say bad things about Ponzo, who's now sleeping on the floor of my office. <laughs> what a good um, boy. <laughs> good boy. Um, if you did if you did that and, you know, I might pay you so it wouldn't hurt his reputation. But if you extorted that out of me, that uh-huh. could be a crime. Right? right. But that's not what we're talking about here. The other condition would be um, let's make it a lot worse. You've got some real dirt on me that could hurt my chances at becoming you know, president of the United States. In that case, the argument is that when Michael Cohen spent $130,000 of his own money uh, to keep her quiet, that that was the equivalent to his having given the Trump presidential campaign $130,000. And as bad, as bad as our campaign finance laws are, there are actually caps well below that for direct um, donations to campaigns and candidates that blew that out of the water. So that would have been an unlawful campaign contribution. Um, that, that's one thing, right? And but that's why, why is that why... on the state level? Isn't this grand jury? Oh, but that's wait, 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 okay. wait, 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 wait. Yes, okay. <laughs> but that was that's what that's what Michael Cohen. One of the many things he pleaded guilty to related to that. But now the state level, that's not that. There's a little bit of an other complication because when. Donald Trump um, went to pay back Michael Cohen instead of instead of remember it's always follow the money yes. instead of reaching into his own personal bank account he decided to use the Donald Trump organization the business <laughs> to do that now again having your business do things for you okay you know let's forget the campaign aspect 
he he had him and you see Donald Trump's name on many at least six of the 11 checks that the New York Times looked at he signed checks on behalf of the business he was president of it um, to pay legal fees of like $35,000 per check um, to Michael Cohen in connection with this and another payoff and the problem is a legal fee is an expense right and you're saying something is an expense incurred by the corporation when it was not this was a you know for the campaign uh-huh. not for the corporation right. or for, if it wasn't even for the campaign it was for him personally mm-hmm. um so there's that so you've got the falsification of business records that's the state statute they're looking at but there's mm-hmm. more um when you put something when a business says something's a business expense it reduces the amount of income they have and therefore the amount of business income tax that, that the corporation would pay. There's potential tax evasion charges here. Um, and it could go on and on. And 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 by the way, this is very parallel to what uh, Donald Trump's two corporations that do business as a Trump organization, the Trump Corporation and the Trump Payroll Corporation. Remember, they were convicted by a jury. I know that's so long ago in December. And the <laughs> sentence was last month in February or January. You know, guys, let's like, you know, we've wiped our brain clean of the fact that his businesses were found guilty by a jury. And by the way, guess who the DA was? Alvin Bragg, Bragg, same DA. They successfully bring a case of, guess what? Falsifying business records. And what was the falsification of business records there? Related to, you know, filing false tax forms and so on. So we've got the business records. We've got tax. We also had a separate tax fraud charges. There was conspiracy. Um, and there was like a scheme to defraud. And by the way, and, and so just to go back, a lot of people are like, big deal, business records, you know, falsification. Well, this DA, since he's been in office, has brought a lot of those cases, not just against Donald Trump's corporation. And in this case, it would be a felony if it, if the business records that were falsified also facilitated um, this tax fraud. I'm, I'm take a breath now. It's going to all come <laughs> down to, so I'm so excited. It all comes down to, though, this idea of intent. And so that's always the biggest problem, you know, like, can you show that we know that Donald Trump has said out loud that he made those paid those checks. I mean, I, I think I saw a clip on Fox News. I was looking through things the other day. His name is on the checks. So we know that part. The question is that second part um, about knowing the tax evasion part or part of a scheme to defraud. And we just have to see. So that's what I'm thinking around this. It's also possible Alvin Bragg throws in the stuff related to the 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 the, uh, the the scam that his businesses were convicted for, which related to inflating and deflating assets. So we don't really know what's going to come down um, from Alvin Bragg for sure, um, but I think it's going to be pretty juicy. So Stormy Daniels is kind of a smokescreen, just a little bit, and a man who has declared on television before that he does not pay taxes is currently under investigation for both fraud and tax evasion. I think so. Okay. I think that's what's going on. <laughs> that makes a lot of sense. Thank you. You, you definitely get an A+. Plus. Thanks, <laughs> thanks for that. Thanks. Jen Taub is from Northampton and is a law professor at Western New England University School of Law. Has a book all about following the money for white-collar crimes. It's called Big Dirty Money. It's an excellent read. Thank you so much for helping explain some of this confusion to non-legal scholars such as our, uh, ourselves, Jen. Sure, and I would love to come back once we have an indictment, two or three of them. Oh, absolutely, absolutely, because we will understand probably even less when that happens. <laughs> but you make it so easy. Oh, and one more thing, Monty, your check's yeah. in the mail. Okay, great. Oh, no! I'm going to keep Don't everything that. between that your dog did absolutely <laughs> secret. Yes, 
We're not. The, wait, this isn't a hot mic, still, is it? <laughs> Thank you so much, Jen. Up Hi. next, word nerd Emily Brewster from Merriam-Webster in Springfield on the definition of love. Coming up in the fabulous four one three on NEPM. Since my man and I ain't together. Keeps raining all the time. Life is bad. Emily Brewster is our resident wordster from Merriam-Webster, our dictionary in Springfield. She was kind enough to give us a glorious tour of that building right down the street from the NEPM studios. We've also talked with Merriam-Webster editor Peter Sokolowski, who hosts the jazz show here at NEPM, about words with Elon Stabans, about the transformation and changes in beautiful parts of American English, at which Peter is featured in that book, but more sort of rudimentary how the dictionary works from Emily Brewster today about what your job as a dictionary editor actually entails. Yes, my job, and really the job of lexicographers in general. I think there's there's frequently this um, this disconnect between dictionary makers and dictionary users. From a lexicographer's perspective, my job is to you know tell the truth about words. That's how Philip Gove, who was the editor in chief of Merriam-Webster when the 1961 third international dictionary was published and uh, unabridged dictionary. That was how he put it, to tell the truth about words. And I really like that idea because that that is our job. And then determining what exactly that truth is, is where it gets really interesting. Yeah. And especially when it's words that become controversial for some reason or another. There was a huge write-up in the New York Times over the weekend about the word woke and the way that it's been used originally, the way that it's been weaponized now in some political circles. And how does the dictionary handle those type of situations? Well, we have to just examine the evidence. We're very comfortable with the idea that words shift in meaning, that a word uh, that has a, a very positive connotation will then later develop a negative connotation or that it will hold both of those in, the, in different uses and in different instances. I think it's really interesting though, even, even aside from that like kind of very basic way that sometimes people approach a dictionary and they want the dictionary not to tell them what a word means, but what what a thing is. So I, I like to think about this in the context of the word love. Aha. The word love is is always looked up a lot, but especially around Valentine's Day, people are just looking up love That's a too, lot. It's almost too predictable. Come on, look up love in October. <laughs> well, they do. They do look up love in October, <laughs> but a Valentine's Day, they really, really look up love. Uh -huh. And you know, we we know that it's not because they want to know how it's spelled or what its inflections are. Is it because or the of that etymology. song? What is love? What is love? Baby, don't hurt me. Don't hurt me. No, no I, no, I think it's the other song. I want to know what love is. I want to know what love is. Emily Brewster, I want you <laughs> to show me as a dictionary editor. Oh, I have some emails to read to you from uh, people who have written to us. This is yes. really, really how we how we know what they want. So this email is received May 21st, 2018. You need to change the definition of love because what I feel for my girlfriend, name withheld, is far more than what the definition states. 
<laughs> oh my. All right. You ready for another one? Yeah. Okay, this is an email received October 15th, 2015. Oh, they are looking up love in October. Well done. (laughs) Yes, it's true. And May. (laughs) As a dictionary, can you please tell me the true meaning of love? Because I'm going crazy now. Help me love lots. And then they use love anyway, even though they don't themselves feel like they know what the meaning is. Yeah, well, I mean, they, they, they have some sense, but they want us to tell them more. <laughs> it seems like we should actually hear how Merriam-Webster defines love for these people and for other people that may be confused about love and, and are looking to the dictionary for love. Okay, I, I, I will tell you that. But first, I want to I wanna share with you one more email. Oh, yes. This is Please a, um, do. Sometimes they, they want to offer us helpful su- suggestions and mm. corrections. <laughs> so this email says, a new definition of love. Love, when two life forms use one another for leisure, trust, information, and or work. Webster can add more if they wish. <laughs> Does this happen a lot where people write their own definitions to the dictionary and send them in? Oh, yeah, yeah. And, and, and frequently they want, they want credit or money. Has anyone ever been credited for getting a word in the dictionary? So there was a period of time there where Stephen Colbert was trying to push hard to get truthiness in the dictionary. Truthiness is... Anyone can read the news to you. I promise to feel the news at you. And was ultimately successful, I believe, right? Yes, I think. Looking it up. You'll be, you'll be surprised to know that I, I don't have the contents of the, of the dictionary memorized. Yes, okay, truthiness is in, it's defined as a truthful or seemingly truthful quality that is claimed for something not because of supporting facts or evidence, but because of a feeling that it is true or a desire for it to be true. But it doesn't mention Stephen Colbert anywhere there, does it? Well, actually, there is a note immediately after what I just read to you that says, the Oxford English Dictionary provides evidence dating to the first half of the 19th century for the use of truthiness as a rare word synonymous with truthfulness. In its current sense, truthiness was coined and popularized by the American satirist Stephen Colbert, who first used it in 2005. So it is possible, probably not to get paid to define something in the dictionary, but to at least maybe get credit for it if you have a large enough platform. That's right. That's excellent. All right, what is the definition of love then? What is love? Well, the definition of love is is really long and maybe a bit tedious right but it includes things like affection affection that arises out of kinship or personal ties it includes uh, affection and tenderness that is felt by lovers it includes um, like an assurance of affection like give her my love it includes like warm attachment enthusiasm or devotion it's also the tennis meaning right a score of zero (laughs) is also love Yeah, there's also a, a god or a personification of love. There is the love of God for humans, all of those. And and the, these things are all included. These ideas are all included under at the entry for the for love because these are all ways that the word love functions in the language. These are things that the speakers of English call upon the word love to do. And in their other languages, there are more specific words used for specific different types of love, including the the God love that you were referring to, sort of like the agape form of love, the the more romantic eros love in Greek and things. And English may be at a disadvantage because we don't nuance it in the same way with love. We we can nuance it with other words, but we don't have uh, that. They're not always directly connected to love in in the way that those other Greek words are. 
Yeah, well, you know, in in it, I don't think that English is at a um, at a disadvantage, and like we, it's not like that we can't communicate these things. But yes, there are, you know, the more specific a term is, the less modification you need to get at a specific meaning. But we can certainly, you know, we we just we just couch the word love in other explaining words that that communicate more clearly what we mean. Do you think it is? strange that people are coming to the dictionary to look for love in this way? <laughs> I mean, not anymore, right? <laughs> sure. At one point, I think I did did find it strange. But yeah, no, now it's a dictionary is um, people want it to be a, a place to come to greater understanding. And it is, but it is, it is, it is just understanding about words. When I'm trying to answer this question for someone, what is love? I want to point them to, and I, I do point them to when I've when I've replied to messages like this, like like you, that's for the poets and the philosophers, right? To dig into, and maybe for the band foreigner. I want you to show me. To dig into, like, what is the meaning of love itself? What does love do? What does love feel like? But if you want to know what the word love does in the language, well, that's that's what we do. And love is one of the most commonly looked up words for, at Merriam-Webster, right? At Merriam-Webster.com. Now, other really commonly looked up words are looked up for exactly the reasons that um, that we expect people to look to a dictionary, like affect and effect. Oh, yeah. Right? Like that the, the, that pair is just such a beast. It really so is. It, it, yeah. I consider myself a reasonably intelligent person, and I struggle with this one mightily. I struggled with it until I wrote the usage note for the dictionary, <laughs> and then I finally got it down. Okay, so <laughs> maybe we should read that usage note because maybe that it will then oh. guide me. Like I feel like I've got a, a relatively good grasp on the whole thing, but I second guess myself every time, and then I usually end up saying like, "I'm going to come up with a different word besides effect or affect, and just go in a different direction with this sentence that I'm writing." Well, I mean, the, the, the simplest thing is to just think that in, in most cases, if you want a verb, you want affect with an A. Okay. And if you want a noun, you want effect with an E. Although they're both, I, I'm pronouncing them completely incorrectly, right? Because they're both affect. That's how they both sound in kind of, uh, in just running conversation. We don't say affect and effect. You say affect I... if you mean the noun psychology related meaning of affect, but that's a very, you know, it's, it's a really specialized meaning of the word. So... But in general, I think of, I think of a capital A uh -huh. as looking like a V, like an upside down V. Right. And so that's for the verb. And then, you know, lowercase E is rounded and that's kind of like a noun, like an N for I... a noun, lowercase N. I got it. Affect verb effect noun but i do think we should say them differently it's like people with boston accents are really good at differentiating between the name mary <laughs> versus i feel merry and i'm gonna marry you know like i feel merry because i'm going to marry mary a lot of people say <laughs> i feel merry because i'm gonna marry mary don't do that affect yeah. effect affect effect affect so the affect on the human the English language of using an A with a, that particular sound <laughs> creates an effect which would make it easier to understand which word you're using. Did you I just used the noun twice. Damn it! 
<laughs> I told you this was hard. <laughs> it's very hard. And what a ridiculous thing for these to be such common words. Yeah. And, um, you know, it, it, thank God that most of the time we're talking to each other and not writing. But in writing, which increasingly is how we communicate with one another, um, it, it, it matters. I think it's miraculous that this pair has not um, synthesized into a single term. Which is common, right? And has happened with other commonly used words that are confusing. Yes, that would be a reasonable thing to happen with this pair, but it has not happened. Well, one of the ones that drives people nuts is literally, right? Because literally, literally doesn't mean literally anymore, nor did it in Shakespeare's time, but still drives people nuts when you say literally and you don't mean literally, unless you're one of the people that literally says literally all the time. Pawnee is literally the greatest town in the country. Literally, literally, literally. There's literally nothing in this world that you cannot do. Literally. Yes, there's that. But then there's also the fact that literally originally meant with, with having to do what is in a book, which could be figurative. Ah, uh, right. It's fiction. Right? Like, what, what's, <laughs> right. Right. As is the case with, with language in general, it's really, it's really all about convention. It is like the, you know, words stray from their etymologies all the time. The word influence originally had to do with this idea that there was something that flowed from the stars down to humans. Etymology, you know, it can, it can form like shades of meanings. It can stick to words, but then it can also be completely cast off and like it's not, it's not there at all. And that's the main lesson to take away from Merriam-Webster, our dictionary in Springfield. You got to just roll with where the language is going to go. Merriam-Webster calls balls and strikes, just saying how people are using the language. Yeah. This idea of like what um, defining what a word means as opposed to what a thing is like love. We talk about it in kind of funny terms of one is real defining and one is word defining, which means in a sense that, you know, foreigner is doing real defining. And we at the dictionary are, are, are not. Because they want to know what love is and they want to be shown it. They don't want to read about the right. usage well, because they're talking about actual love and not the word love got it that makes a lot of yeah. sense don't come to the yeah. dictionary to find actual love come <laughs> to the dictionary to find the definition of the word love but you can build a love of language by coming to the dictionary so that's that's finding love looking for love in all the wrong places i feel like we all saw that one coming yep Coming up, we begin our Meet the Mayor series with Holyoke Mayor Joshua Garcia. You're listening to The Fabulous 413 on NEPM. Welcome back to The Fabulous 413. I'm Khalees Smith. And I'm Monty Belmonte. It's time for our first installment ever of Meet the Mayor. Our first mayor is Joshua Garcia of Holyoke, elected on November 2nd, 2021, after three and a half years as town administrator of Blanford. Fake mayor, I like to think of town administrators, <laughs> which I unelected, but still doing the, a lot of the same work. Prior to that, Joshua worked at the Pioneer Valley Planning Commission and the Holyoke Housing Authority. He has also served as a member of the Holyoke School Committee, Holyoke Fire Commission, Holyoke Community College Foundation, the Public Health Institute of Western Mass, the MIIA Health Group Trust, and Nueva Esperanza in Holyoke. Joshua is a lifelong resident of Holyoke, having gone through the public school system and Holyoke High School before attending Westfield State University, where he earned both his bachelor's and master's degrees. He lives with his wife, Stephanie, and two children, Ethan and Allison. Welcome, Mayor Garcia. 
I can hear him clicking in there, I but can. I don't know if he can hear us. <laughs> I hope that he can. Oh, Mayor Garcia, can you hear us? I can hear you. Oh, good. Did go. you miss the uh, incredible introduction we gave for you? He's so proud. Did of I us. miss the introduction? Oh, yeah, I missed it. Yeah, it's okay. Don't worry you, about you it. You know who you are, so it's, we don't have to tell you who you are. Yeah, we were, it's called Meet the Mayor, the segment, and we basically told them everything about you already. Yeah. So we can just let the conversation totally end fine. now. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, <laughs> All right. You've like, been mayor for just know, over no. a year. It took so long to get here. I know. Uh, you were mayor for just over a year now. The first um, Puerto Rican mayor of a virtually half Puerto Rican, half Irish city and just over the weekend oversaw the second largest St. Patrick's Day parade in the country. Uh, recollections of this past uh, weekend at the parade, Mayor? Well, if you ask any Holyoker, they'll definitely tell you we're the first largest. So. <laughs> Who, who's the competitive other? Uh, I think uh, the city of Boston. Okay. I think. Uh, Highlights from this last weekend? It was cold. Mm-hmm. Very cold. Yeah. Uh, but... Um, Historically, the parade has gone through any – we've had colder days. Okay. We've had snow days. We'd have yep. – um, the only time they really shut down was uh, COVID. Uh-huh. But we're back. Now, as a Latino kid that's Puerto Rican growing up in what was an Irish-run city for the largest part of your childhood, I'm imagining, what is your uh, recollection of the Holyoke St. Patrick's Day Parade as a kid versus now kind of overseeing the whole thing as the mayor? Well, I think – to understand my connection to that parade as a Latino kid, you know, first and foremost, uh, I'm a Hoyoker. And no matter where you grow up in this city, no matter what corner you're coming from, uh, we identify as, as Hoyokers. Uh, that happened to be of the descent where we come from. And the city has always historically celebrated different cultures, different backgrounds, um, raised different flags at City Hall, um, different festivals and parades. And so, um, you know, it was a, it's always been an exciting time uh, for every kid growing up in the city, going to that parade um, and participating in it, um, marching in it uh, one way or another if you're part of a youth organization. Um, and now to be in this role as the city's mayor, um, it's uh, very uh, humbling uh, to know where I came from and be here today to participate in this longstanding tradition of this city. And I'm just so grateful to have my Irish brothers and sisters be able to share that experience with um, uh, everybody in the city, in the region, throughout the Commonwealth, um, as well as the country and the world. We had people from Ireland um, that were visiting us. I believe it was uh, um, one of the prime ministers and um, uh, other folks, uh, senators that came and marched in the parade. Yeah, you had a Fulbright scholar. They were on our yeah, show. Yeah, we had an Irish Saint Fulbright scholar on yes. Friday on St. Patrick's Day. Did you actually get to try the tostones and corned beef combination? Because I saw that on a poster, and I am That's intrigued. Right. We started that. So, <laughs> you know, uh, tostones is a very this is a traditional um, uh, Latino food. Right. Fried um, plantains. You got twice pl- fried yep, plantains. Fried right? plantains. And then uh, you got the corned beef. And so... The, the idea behind that, we have this business owner on the other side of High Street on road race day. Um, uh, you know, we wanted, I, I wanted to help our local business get folks to um, explore the other side of High Street. And so we mixed the two cultures, Puerto Rican and Irish. My city treasurer uh, joining me on, joined me on that. He's Irish himself. And we did a mayoral city treasurer reception, 
corned beef and tostones. <laughs> I got to try that sometime. It's really good. It sounds, it sounds tasty. <laughs> Bigger fan of tostones than most uh, corned beef personally over the years, even though I'm half Irish. We're speaking with the mayor of Holyoke, Joshua Garcia, in our first ever Meet the Mayor segment. We've reached out to other mayors, and we hope that they will take up that offer. So we really appreciate that you've done uh, that you're the first uh, Mayor Garcia. Oh, the first. Excellent. Yeah. <laughs> well, it's only we're, Today's our one-month anniversary of having a show, so there we go. Oh, okay. Yeah. yeah. And uh, reporter Dusty Christensen from NEPM uh, took a look at a decade of civilian complaints against the Holyoke Police Department. Now, you, as I mentioned, you've only been the mayor for a year. Uh, 92 times an officer was named in a complaint. The department upheld those allegations only three times. Dusty and NEPM obtained these records after a sweeping police reform law in Massachusetts mm-hmm. opened up this law enforcement misconduct, uh, misconduct investigation to some greater public scrutiny. Um, and if you in Holyoke have debated how best to move forward after an independent audit released last month found that the police department posed what they called a, quote, substantial risk to the city. The mm-hmm. firm Municipal Resources presented its report to you uh, that, that you commissioned. The audit uh, reviewed the police department's practices and organizational structures and found that the department is chronically understaffed, undertrained, and not following some of its own outdated policies. Uh, you began by acknowledging that everybody in the room had a shared desire to see things be better. And I, I am, am I correct in my understanding that you're currently at the table with the patrol officers union? Uh, we just uh, ratified the uh, contractual we, the contract there. Okay, um, just like about a week or two ago. Nice. Now, tell me uh, in your your response to this audit versus mm-hmm. what coming to the patrol officers union with the contract, what changes have been made that you feel like are moving the police department in Holyoke in a, in a more positive direction? The concern, the the in the audit. Um, it goes into detail the officer patrol time, and it, it, it talked about um, some contractual barriers that are not allowing for, um, that are contributing to some of the issues that we're experiencing, including the morale issue. You know, I don't know if you saw the presentation at all, but they talked, or even in the report, they talked about officers being held back to work another shift mm-hmm. uh, because of the shortage um, when officers go on vacation or when they're out on injured on duty or or whatever the situation might be where there's no other option than to hold an officer back and nothing adds to the morale problem um, more negatively than than doing that Um, people can't go home their families and whatnot Uh, but uh, one of the things that we negotiated was um, uh, um, time off uh, the 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 hours allotted to time off. I forget the numbers uh, that were um, that it is like the sick time and the time off time and whatnot. So um, uh, that was uh, and it wasn't just the patrol officers. It was the it's the union, um, the uh, supervisors, um, officers as well, where we were able to renegotiate renegotiate that. Um, but there's there's still so much more work to do. I think the audit and its release. You know, while this was happening at the same time, didn't allow for, you know, we were already near end. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, but I think what I appreciate today, you know, we have a chief that's in there having a candid discussion with the folks internally in that department, understanding um, the information that came coming out of this, working on a plan um, to start implementing the recommendations that came out of it. 
everyone is kind of learning and understanding together, including the public and the council, as well as me as the mayor, um, so that we can uh, start getting on a better path forward. It, it's a com- very complex problem, and it's not just that department. It's many departments, but uh, with this one, it's its own um, complexity of its kind. And so the best we can do is, uh, you know, acknowledge that there are problems, so we don't want to hide anything. And then from there, get stakeholders together and say, okay, well, what are we going to do to resolve these issues so we're providing better services to the community? Before we take a quick break, um, this audit that came out, and we're speaking with the mm-hmm. mayor of Holyoke on our first Meet the Mayor segment, didn't really get into the details of, of the financials, forensic financial audit of the departments and the handling of the state and federal grant programs. Uh, do you intend to do an audit of that nature? I would I would like to. The The thing is, is and and. You know, this the the financial audit. When we were procuring um, services from a qualified consultant to help engage in the audit, those that submitted didn't necessarily have that that financial in the background. I think what I'm going to need to do is bring in a CPA CPA to look into it. Mm-hmm. At the same time, you know, and and believe me, like you know, I want to make sure no stone is unturned. And when I I'm able to, I would love to um, evaluate that in case I'm missing anything. At the same time, there isn't a real um, there. When you're in this position, from the outside looking in, it feels like there might be an issue with how you know maybe there's. But once you're in here and, and you're able to ask the questions and you're able to look into and and explore and you get a very different um, perspective of what's happening. And you know, in local government, we have our city auditor that is. Um, you know, everything we do and, and how we manage our finances are, are bind to, you know, mass general law and best practices. And we have a city auditor that works hand in hand with that department to make sure that how we're moving money around, for example, is not conflicting with uh, the laws of the Commonwealth of, on how we manage resources. And those federal dollars, the grants they get, they the federal government has their own audit that they do annually or periodically to make sure that the department is you know what I mean? So it's it, mm-hmm. there hasn't been any red flags to make me feel like, hey, there's a problem here in how this resource is being managed. But with that being said, it's healthy to have CPAs and come in and 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 look into that because you know you you want to make sure that you're you're practicing the the you know you're being a, a good stewards of 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 you know public resources. We're speaking with the mayor of Holyoke on our first ever Meet the Mayor segment on the Fabulous 413. Coming up, we'll talk about pizza. We will talk about schools. And maybe the quarry. Yeah, maybe the quarry with a listener question. You're listening to the Fabulous 413 on NEPM. Welcome back to the Fabulous 413. I'm Monty Belmonte. I'm Khalees Smith. We're speaking with the mayor of Holyoke, Mayor Joshua Garcia, on our brand new Meet the Mayor segment. And we got a listener question from Adam Gilbert, who wanted to know about the Historical Commission and says, why did Mayor Garcia think it appropriate to send a police officer to the house of the chair of the city's Historical Commission, Paula Ferrario, to dismiss her from her post? 
That is not how dismissals are done, he says ordinarily. Does he believe this is an appropriate use of the city's police? Response to Adam Gilbert's question, Mayor? I think that everybody has their own, and this is true to a lot of things that are done internally. I think people have a perspective of what's allowed and what's not allowed. Um, uh, you know, but nevertheless, you know, police officers, you know, just like constables, um, have that power and authority to be able to go and serve somebody. Um, could we a different method could have been chosen? You know, it really wasn't coming from Blanford, um, small town, local right. government. When I had to send a notice to be served or anything, we've often used a police officer, and it just wasn't really thought of as. But I could see how the public can 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 see that and, and feel some sort of way. Mm-hmm. Um, so. You know, lesson learned on my end, if that's, you know, in my, there's nothing wrong with using a police officer to, to formally serve somebody. It's It's been done. It's it's not, not illegal. It's a good form of, but certainly, you know, if that's a method that the community feels is too much or, or whatever the case, there's other methods for sure. Um, either way, we just needed to make sure that when we um, send out communication, we want to be sure that the person we're sending it to is actually receiving it. Right. Um, so, it, you know, it's one of those where it's like, I'm not going to sit here and 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 feel like... It's lesson, you know, lesson learned, maybe. The, yeah, lesson the, learned yeah. if it's something... But at the same time, nothing illegal was... Like, right. it was... It's right. Nothing bad happened, yeah. and so it's, it's a, not... And, uh, to understand that, like, it's a serving of papers, it's not an arrest. Yeah. And those are two different But it can things. be easily... It's seen how it could be perceived right. elsewise. So Governor Mara Healy promised on day one in office she'd demand a plan for getting Holyoke schools and the other districts that are currently in receivership back into the hands of the city and the school committee um, that is to get out of state receivership. And we understand that the Holyoke School Committee, which you're a part of, has been going through a training with the Massachusetts Association of School Committees, and you're pushing to finish this in the next two months or so. Is that a sign, are both of those things combined a sign that you're moving to get out of receivership more quickly, even though Baker, in while he was still in office, signed a turnaround contract that would keep it in receivership for another three years. Yeah, so when it comes to that conversation, transitioning to local control has, has been the effort, the initiative um, that our school board has committed to with uh, the commissioner and, and vice versa. Um, uh, you know, we have an administration that's extremely supportive of returning schools back to local control, but certainly we want to make sure that it's done responsibly, and that I can't disagree with. I don't expect uh, local control next week because um, we have the majority of our board at moment who's never really operated under a system of local control. And um, but nevertheless, you know, we're currently working. Um, and getting trained up to understand what local control means. Um, uh, And we have uh, a superintendent, well, the receiver, who we recognize as our superintendent. We have a great collaborative, at least from what I've witnessed, a really good collaborative relationship between the school board and the receiver. Anthony Soto. Anthony Soto. And then you have the, the, the commissioner, Mr. Riley, who has been very good to 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 seek guidance and to connect with and um him and i speak regularly and trying to understand you know that that timeline and, and he's doing what he has to do and so again we don't expect local control to happen at a snap but it 
But well, let what me I ask can you this, say is that Mayor, there is a commitment to transition. Do you think it's on a faster timeline now because of the Healy administration than the Baker timeline? Yeah, my guess would be less than two years. Okay, uh, that's okay. a guess. Now, you know, um, we'll we'll see where it lands. Obviously, these things, you know, when it comes to trying to plan for it. There are unknowns, but I can I feel confident that it can happen in less than two years, now, if I know, not sooner. I know this is an unfair question to ask the mayor of a city, but we have been conducting an experiment here on the show of to finding the best pizza in the four counties of Western Mass. <laughs> I'm biased. Do you want to put a specific Holyoke pizza shop forward and add it to our pizza yeah, quest? Absolutely. I mean, this is no question. It's Capri pizza. I knew it. Khalees knew it was going to be Capri. <laughs> I was like, he's not going to go out on well, a limb and just say that as the mayor, but you did. You, know, you got to understand, I grew up in the building behind it. <laughs> oh. South Holyoke, so and, extra love. <laughs> and so I, my first job was a Boys and Girls Club when I was in seventh grade, and I worked there for 10 years. When I got my first check, I was getting paid 50 bucks a week. Nice. And I used to walk down, <laughs> cash my check at the supermarket across from Capri, and then I'd go to Capri and buy a slice of pizza with a soda and a bag of chips for less than five bucks. Wow. And I remember telling the owner, like, hey, I used to get change back. Like, now it's more. And then he looked at me and said, well, it's the taxes. we got to do something about the taxes. <laughs> and as mayor, that's my first order of business. <laughs> mayor, I think that's changed hands. Now it's key food, and they do great things with chicharrones. So, like, mayor yeah. Joshua Garcia, our great. first guest on our first uh, Meet the Mayor series. Thank you so much for doing this. We've got many Thanks more for questions me. for you. We'll have you on again sometime soon for sure. For sure. Great. There's Thanks. Oh. Thursday in the Fabulous 413, the Honorable Judge John Hodgman, author, actor, comedian, personal computer, former Valley resident, and fake internet judge. He's one of the stars of the new musical Hulu show, debuting Friday, Up Here. Got a minor household dispute for the Honorable Judge John Hodgman to adjudicate tomorrow? You can email it to us, thefab413 at nepm.org, or text us, 1-800-639-9120, or call that number live tomorrow during the show. Plus, our regular Thursday segment, McGovernning with McGovern. You can send us questions for him, too. Fab413 at nepm.org or 1-800-639-9120. Tina from Florence did. She wants to know what the deal is with the new fence surrounding the Leeds VA. So I'll ask him tomorrow. Our director is Tony. Needs to schedule baby goat time soon. Done. Our engineer today is Bart. Swears at machines. Rankin. Our technical team is Kara. Does not mince words. Foster. And punk rock Dubay. <laughs> Musical thanks to Spouse, Happy Valley Guitar Orchestra, who are performing at Bombix in Florence this Saturday, The Beatles, Billie Holiday, and Homebody. I'm Khalees Smith. I'm Monty Belmonte. See you tomorrow. On the Fabulous 413.